1: Hey guys, before this episode starts, I want to talk about some pretty cool news. Okie Investigations now has its own website. It's truecrime.blog and it is a running blog for crime stories and for this show. So if you're a true crime buff and you want to see some cool things that we gathered while researching each show, including a timeline of events that we put together, uh, newspaper clippings, court documents, and much, much more. Come check us out at truecrime.blog. I've shot. My husband's been shot.
0: Okay, mm. you and your husband have both been shot? Yes, yes. Who shot, you? I don't know. Don't. Was, I, I don't know. They had on black masks. I don't know.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Oki Investigations. In this episode, we are going to discuss the murder of Robert Dell Andrews. He was shot with a shotgun when helping his estranged wife, Brenda Rose Andrews. Brenda was shot in the arm and called 911. This case ended with two people being placed on death row. In this episode, we will discuss what happened and why. Also, many things have happened since the trial, and we'll be covering those as well. But first, if you're a first-time listener, to experience this podcast to its finest, hit that subscribe button so when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. Then, head over to our Facebook page. Here we can discuss the many things about the cases, and maybe come up with our own theories as well. You can find us at Facebook.com. Forward slash Okie Investigations. For this week's episode, I scoured the local shop near me for one of my favorite drinks, flavored coffee. Since quarantine, I've been on a worldwide trip from home, drinking different coffees from around the globe. Now, I didn't have to go very far this week because a roasting company here in Oklahoma provided me with some great coffee. This week I've been drinking Higher Grounds coffee. I chose their Southern Pecan flavor. The pecan is not overpowering. It's just right. And I'm going to go through this bag pretty quickly. Simply put, it's amazing. One of the reasons I need coffee is to keep me sharp for my research. Higher Grounds does the job in a delicious way. If you want to give them a try, go to hgokc.com. ...and order from their website. Big thank you to the fine folks over there at Higher Grounds Coffee Company. They have a great mission. Definitely check them out. Now, before we get started, I want to say a few things about the show. I want to say thank you to all of you that have said such wonderful things about this show. I've received some really good constructive criticism. I'm working on making some improvements... So hopefully you guys see a little bit of that. I'm not perfect at this and I strive to be better. I was amazed at the response that everyone's given on Facebook. The poster that we've shared of Vaughn and Rosalind Abel has gone, what I'm going to call Okie viral. It's been shared over a hundred times. It's been seen by almost 10,000 people, not just here in Oklahoma, but all over the world. So, yeah, definitely big thank you to you guys. It's it's kind of overwhelming. Thank you guys so much. When I started this show, I knew that this was going to be one of the cases I wanted to cover. I was in high school when this murder happened, and it was all over our local news. As more and more of the details came out, you had to stand back and wonder why no one stepped in before this all happened. But I'm not going to spoil it for you. Let's get to it. To completely understand this story, you need to start way back when Brenda was just a child growing up in Enid, Oklahoma. Brenda Evers was born on December 16th, 1963. By all accounts, Brenda was a pretty darn good child. She earned good grades, went to church, and became a baton twirler when she got into high school. In her senior year, Brenda met Rob through her younger brother, who she was friends with. Rob attended Oklahoma State University. The two became smitten with each other. To quote the Princess Bride, isn't that a wonderful beginning? One of the things that probably helped their relationship is that Enid isn't very far from Stillwater, where the OSU campus is located. The two could make the hour-long drive pretty regularly. This closeness is became even more evident after Brenda graduated high school and was accepted in a southwestern college in Winfield, Kansas. Personally, I've been to Winfield several times and I can definitely see the allure to someone wanting to go out there that's definitely like Brenda, Um, especially if you're not looking for the party scene and more of a quiet town. Winfield is not like most places in Kansas. Yes, they have the large cattle farms and Fields of wheat but the town of Winfield is a cozy place filled with beautiful old houses and elaborate churches. That would be a draw for someone like Brenda. But the move to Winfield added almost an hour to the drive to see Rob. With schoolwork and exams to study for it just became all too difficult for Brenda. She decided to move to Stillwater to be closer to Rob. On May 29, 1984, Brenda and Rob decided they are going to tie the knot, but the honeymoon phase was over just as quickly as it began. Rob's friend Barb Mercer Green stated in an interview conducted by the Daily Oklahoman, Brenda told Rob that she hated him on their wedding night. Rob's father even reported that before the wedding, one time we were driving by a motel and Rob casually told me that he found Brenda at the motel with a former boyfriend. This was after he was engaged to her. I said to Rob, wake up. But he was too quick to look and believe in the best in people. After graduating at Oklahoma State University, Rob took a job in Texas and moved him and his family down that way. Barb and Rob worked together in the same office. Barb actually worked just across the hall from him. They quickly became friends and Rob would go to Barb from time to time to discuss problems in his marriage. She stated that she heard a number of stories about Brenda over the years. One such story was that while they were eating spaghetti dinner together, Brenda stopped eating and angrily told Rob that she absolutely hated the way he ate. She got up from the table and dumped her plate of spaghetti in his lap. On December 23, 1990, the couple welcomed their first child into the world. Perhaps Rob thought that bringing a child into this marriage would be a good way of sorting a lot of those marital problems out. Rob named his daughter Tri-City. It was said that Rob liked the name because he could see his daughter doing anything in this world, even running for office. Vote for Tri-City. But bringing a child into the relationship just placed another person in the middle of an already toxic relationship. Four years later, they welcomed their second child, Parker, into the family. At the birth of the first child, Brenda became a stay-at-home mom. The life that she once had changed very quickly. She went from working in the bank, having wonderful friends, to only being around kids and changing diapers. For some this would be a welcome change, motherhood is not an easy job, but getting the chance to not only stay home, raise a big beautiful family, and have time to bond and shape the lives of your children, for many of those they would see that as a wonderful rewarding experience. But it seems that this was just not right for Brenda. Shortly after the birth of their children, Rob began going to church to seek out advice on what he should do to help fix his failing marriage. Brenda was regularly telling Rob that their marriage was a mistake and she absolutely hated him. Rob, however, did not believe in divorce, so he sought out other ways to try to make things better. Now, I don't know about you, but one way I like to make things better is have a good laugh, and there's no better place than that within the highly illogical podcast. Each week we talk about nerdy topics like our favorite sci-fi film or who was the best Dark Trek captain and much, much more. Find Highly Illogical wherever podcasts are available. After the birth of their second child, Brenda started changing her style. She started wearing revealing clothing. Brenda probably liked the attention this got her. It was at this point Brenda decided that she was going to start having an affair. For her first affair, Brenda showed what kind of friend she really is by having an affair with one of her friend's husbands, Rick Nunley. Rick and Brenda carried on for about a year. Rick would go on to say that even after they decided to stop sleeping with each other, they stayed in touch by phone. It was during this time Rob was completely oblivious to what was going on around him. To make matters worse, this was just the first of many affairs. Not too long after the affair with Rick ended, Brenda started flirting with a van at a local nearby shop. Brenda would purposely wear revealing clothing and wink at James Higgins. Every time she would come into the store, James, a married man, but all the same, he noticed the advances and started flirting back. Not long after, Brenda came into the shop like usual, and they flirted this time, but before she left... She gave James a hotel key and told him to meet her there. This affair would last for two years. Rob was no longer oblivious to what was happening. One day he came home early and found Brenda and Rick eating dinner together. And not too long after, Rob left Brenda, but that didn't really last very long. Still not believing in divorce, Rob wanted to work things out with his wife and they got back together. The affair with James didn't, didn't end and lasted until May of 2001 when Brenda set her sights on a bigger fish. Brenda told James she was bored with him and that was that she moved on. Now when I say she found a bigger fish, I don't mean it was someone that was better than Rob. I don't mean it was somebody that was richer or that could provide even a better life. I mean, this is someone that would do anything for Brenda. This is a man that she had wrapped around her finger. Now, from what we covered earlier, we know that Rob and Brenda were religious people. Brenda had her faults and she is considered a sinner for her many actions up to this point. But who are we to judge, right? In 1999, Rob helped found and became a deacon at the North Point Baptist Church. It was during this time, Rob told his friends, I might look like the old Rob outside, but I'm a brand new person inside. Brenda started teaching Sunday school at their church. That's when she set her hooks into fellow Sunday school teacher, deacon, and life insurance agent, James Pavatt. At this time, James was also a very deeply religious man. He was married, but couldn't resist Brenda's charm. It was said by reporter William Phelps, he jumped in hook, line, and fishnet stockings. It wasn't long after that the rumors began. As the relationship between James and Brenda got heated, James ended up filing for divorce which was granted on September 6, 2001. In the same month, Brenda kicked Rob out of their Oklahoma City home, and just a little over a month later, on October 3, 2001, Brenda Andrews filed for divorce. 20 days after Brenda filed for divorce, Rob comes out of his house and notices something leaking from underneath his car. He takes a look and realizes somebody has cut his brake line. He then receives a call from a doctor in a nearby hospital. This doctor tells Rob that his wife has been in an accident. He needs to hurry and get to the hospital. Now, Rob was suspicious at this point. It's a little too convenient that your, his brake line is in up cut, and now he's getting a phone call that he needs to hurry and rush to the hospital. He decides to call the hospital and see if his wife is actually there. Rob speaks to a receptionist that confirms that she is definitely not there. Rob then quickly hangs up and dials 911.
0: Oklahoma City Police Department. Hi there, I'd like to uh, report
1: a client. My uh, brake lines have been cut. Okay, oh. that sounds like attempted murder, don't you think? Now you might be asking yourself, what would James and Brenda stand to gain if they killed Rob? Well, how about $800,000? that might be a pretty good motive to commit murder i mentioned earlier that james was an insurance agent and he was no stranger to the andrew clan and in 1996 james sold rob an eight hundred thousand dollar insurance policy now it seemed to rob they were trying to collect detective mike kilka reportedly spoke to rob about the brake lines Mr. Andrew told me that he was going through a difficult separation pending divorce, and he felt his wife and her boyfriend were responsible. The advice that the detective gave Rob was simple and to the point. Do not be around your soon-to-be ex-wife and her boyfriend unescorted. This was very important advice, and one that Rob just did not follow. Rob also confessed to his friends his suspicions, and they, too, gave him very similar advice. But Rob still thought there was hope for saving his marriage. If he just tried harder, believed more, prayed harder, he would have his family back. Now, I'm going to stress something here. I'm in no way victim-blaming Rob in this situation. Personally, I've been there. Love can do crazy things to a person. It can make you lose sight on what's important. Common sense, that's just out the window. So I do want to point something out here that Rob did oh so right. Rob wasn't stupid, okay? He wasn't stupid to the things that were going on around him. He went to James, the person who wrote his insurance policy, and asked him to remove Brenda as his beneficiary from the policy. James told him there was no way because Brenda was the person who actually owned the policy, so he couldn't make that change. But Rob remembered it all differently. He was the owner of the policy. So Rob did what I would have done. He called James's manager and asked about the policy. Rob was reassured that he was the owner, and that was that. He could do whatever he wanted to with the policy. Now, at this point, Rob is even more suspicious. Rob told James's boss that he thought James was trying to have him killed and collect on the policy with his estranged wife. This sent James into a rage and he soon confronted Rob and told him never speak to his manager. The fact of the matter is, is James and Brenda were already scheming to get the life insurance policy under Brenda's control. They forged a document naming Brenda as the owner of the policy a handwriting expert would go on to say that it was obvious that rob did not actually sign this document the signature was missing several features that was typical of rob one of such was pretty interesting he started adding the fish symbol to his signature it's a christian symbol and it was something that he did in every single signature from around this time they looked at business documents personal documents the way he signed checks all those things he used that fish signature but in this one instance it wasn't there so it's pretty obvious rob did not sign this document now it's near thanksgiving and rob has court ordered uh, visitation with his children and this is a holiday that he gets to have his kids so he's on his way to go pick them up now he's talking to a friend on the phone at this time and According to the friend, Rob was really excited to have the kids for the holiday. When he got to Brenda's house, he told his friend he had to go, that Brenda wanted something. This would be the last time anyone would hear from Rob again. Brenda asked Rob if he could come in and light the pilot light. It was giving her some trouble and she needed help. Rob, being a kind person, agreed. He bent over. He heard someone approaching and turned around to see James approaching with a shotgun. Rob grabbed what was nearest to him to shield himself, but it was just a bag of cans. James shot Rob without a second thought. Then he handed the shotgun to Brenda, who took aim and shot Rob again. The second shot was the one that killed Rob. Then, as a part of their plan, James shot Brenda in the arm with a 22 caliber pistol at point blank range. Brenda tried to trick the police
0: shot My husband's been shot. Okay, you and your husband have both been shot? Yes, yes. Who shot you? She... Uh, I don't know. You don't? Uh, I don't know. They
1: had on black masks, and I don't know. But they made many missteps along the way. James had borrowed his daughter's Janna's car. When he returned it, she found the bullet casing inside, and she called her father to ask about it, and he just told her to throw it away. She didn't. She ended up turning that over to the police. On the day of Rob's funeral, instead of attending Brenda, her two children, and James fled to Mexico. Rob, still believing Jana was on his side, would call his daughter asking her to send some money. But it was at this time she was cooperating with the FBI, and all of this was going to be used as evidence in the trial. In February that next year, Brenda and James gave up. They re-entered the United States and were back on their way to Oklahoma City to face trial. They both pled not guilty and it didn't help. They were both found guilty and sentenced to death. Since the trial, Brenda has appealed and appealed the decision with no change in her situation. According to the Oklahoma Department of Corrections, only three women have been put to death in Oklahoma's history. Brenda will be its fourth. James almost got off death row. In 2017, a three-judge federal appeals court overturned the death sentence for James. But a full 13 judge court decided to uphold that decision. This was a pretty crazy story to research. There was a lot going on here that um, just a lot of different news outlets and stories just kind of got things garbled up. And so it took some real digging to kind of put this timeline together. It was a real interesting case. I think one of the saddest things about this case is Rob saw a lot of this coming, and yet he didn't take steps to protect himself whenever it came to do things like coming and you know picking up the kids and you know something as simple as meeting in a safe space uh, would have probably helped here. Um, I know things. What a lot of families do is they drop off and pick their kids up at McDonald's or, you know, something like that, a public place that could be safe where you can just exchange the kids, you know, to avoid problems like these. And this is exactly why you do those sorts of things. I feel like Rob, um, he sounded like he was a very, very good individual, very kind hearted. He was very caring and it's really sad that he was taken away from those children. Now for your Oklahoma history lesson in crime. We're going to go ahead and look into the murder of Joe Carroll, which happened back in 1921. This man was pretty much gunned down because he was a bootlegger. And the oddly enough, it was the Ku Klux Klan that wanted him out of town. So, this article comes from the Daily Oklahoman Archive, which is a wonderful resource if you're wanting to do some old-timey research. This article starts off saying, Ardmore clan threatens to rush prison. This is in Ardmore, Oklahoma, December 17th, with seven men in jail, five of them charged with the murder of Joe Carroll and John Smith at Wilson, and the finding of the body of C.C. C. Slim's Ardmore Policeman Sheriff Buck Garrett is keeping a close guard on the Garter County Jail. Late Saturday afternoon, the sheriff received a letter signed by the Klan No. 7 in Ardmore, Oklahoma. To the effect that an attempt would be made to break the Smith boys from jail. Rumors are also afloat of a possible rush. So, basically, what's going on here is... Several men have been arrested for the murder of Joe Carroll. Now the Klan is threatening to rush the jail to get get everybody out, especially these Smith boys. Of the people that are under arrest, you have a pastor who uh, apparently might have been a little bit ahead of a lot of the uh, proceedings here. His name was Reverend Leon Julius. He was a Baptist minister. Uh, then you got John Smith, who was a butcher, And another man, J.A. Gillum, who was, he raised cattle, and he was also once a candidate for sheriff. So, sounds like a pretty good deal that he didn't win that sheriff position. (laughs) So, basically what happened in this was that Joe Carroll, who was a bootlegger, he ended up getting a letter from the Ku Klux Klan saying, you better get out of town, and or they were going to do something about it. And they gave him a date that he needed to be out of town by. Well, Joe, I guess being Joe, didn't want to go. So uh, Joe, from what I've read, was living in a shack at this point. So I think just picking up and leaving just seems a little bit uh, unrealistic. So, I mean, how easy is it for you to just pack up and leave? I mean, that's, just, that's, a, that's an ordeal, man. So anyways, this Joe character, he he's not leaving. So, uh, by what I've read, I don't know how accurate everything is, but about 200 people arrived in town, and they wanted to teach Joe Carroll a lesson. When asked what they planned on doing to him, it wasn't murder. <laughs> they weren't going to murder him. They were just going to tar and feather him, which... Is a very unpleasant experience, I would say. So uh, they're going to drive him out of town any way possible. So this group, two hundred, sends twenty men out. They're going to go pick up Joe and bring him to his uh, little party. So these men come down. They go pick up. They go to pick up uh, Joe, and Joe resists them, and just about what, what I would probably do. He starts to fight him and a gunfight ensues. And well, of the men that went to go pick him up, one policeman and another man were shot dead there at the scene. And then Joe himself was sadly killed right there at his house. Now that he did have family, friends and family there, they may have been helping. I'm not entirely sure in this whole shootout. But yeah, and we'll get to the policeman uh, that died at the scene that was a very odd and interesting thing they put in the paper here I'm trying to explain his presence there which and I'm not harping on police officers or anything like that I'm just saying this was pretty pretty funny how they explained this so but yeah this reverend he he gets arrested and with among these other guys and you get uh, I think they arrested 11 people. And of the 11, I think seven were charged. And I think all those guys were never, never did any jail time or anything. They, they ended up getting out scot-free. So the police officer, Sims, uh, they said his body cannot be explained. When found at what is known to be a gathering place for the KKK, he wore a pair of Unionalls, which was usually worn by members of the clan, and there was a mask nearby his body. But we're not saying he was part of the clan. What we're saying is, is, these weird things were all around him, so I just thought that was kind of funny how they put that. They they didn't want to come out and say their police officers were the clan. That would, you know, that's that's never a great thing to put out to the public. I guess, but back then I mean who knows they may have got more support. anyways makes me thankful I live in the era I live in today. We may not live in a perfect society but it's better than this <laughs> so anyways guys thank you so much for joining me. I uh, I have a lot of fun putting this one together. If you guys have any ideas of what I should cover, definitely pop it over there on the facebook page facebook.com forward slash okie investigations i've had a couple people uh, say hey you should look into this case this one was this one was pretty interesting and sure enough i think i picked up a couple of episodes so uh, yeah if you guys want me to look into anything definitely throw them by me i'll see what i can do see what i can look into i am no private investigator and also, if you made it to this point, if you uh, like the show, give it a rating. Uh, those ratings, uh, they don't seem like they do a lot, but they, they are a very powerful tool. So give me an honest rating. Uh, let me know what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong, and I will work to improve the show. But thank you guys so much. I'll see you next time.